0: Welcome to The David McQueen Show, a weekly podcast where through insights and interviews, I explore what good leadership looks like for business and non-profit organizations. My main aim is to keep the podcast long enough to cover the subject, but short enough to create interest. So sit back and enjoy this episode of The David McQueen Show. It's good to be back. Yes, back with a new series of podcasts. I feel a little bit like Netflix, like I've released really something new. Um, but here I am, yes, Dave McQueen, and back with my imaginatively titled um, self named show about leadership. And uh, I remember the last episode I recorded, I think, was back uh, in September 2017. And I had been going through uh, a number of recordings and really just trying to find out what it is I was trying to teach or share with individuals on this journey of leadership. And what I realized in having conversations with people is they really love the insights, but again, they were constantly asking me who the kind of guests that could come onto the show is great. Obviously, Dave, hearing your insights as to what it is you do and how you do it. But it'd be really good to be able to listen to the experiences of others, and so what I did is I took some time out and I did a little bit of research to find out who is in the space and specifically what they are doing um, around leadership in their organisations, uh, whether they were running an organisation, be it a business or a school or a non profit, or whether they were individuals who were involved in leadership development and coaching programmes. And what I really wanted to do was have honest conversations. Because here's the thing, and if I'm really, really honest, I think a lot of leadership development actually sucks. Um, In that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff you will hear about being this ideal leader, what it really looks like, and the kind of organizations we will work for. But it would seem that a lot of stuff hasn't changed. People are still getting sacked. Um, Some of the most popular uh, or more profitable companies in the world um, have really bad practices. They treat their staff crap. They have, you know, do some horrible stuff around outsourcing or climate change and, and all the rest of it. And, and even the ones that seem to be quite good or desirable to work for, they're still quite restrictive in the way that they hire. Hardly any um, diversity in the way that the um, workforce is split up. And I guess in many ways, my thing is, is not necessarily to just try and look for a specific ideal. Which is cool, but I think it's unrealistic and I think we set ourselves up to fail when we do that because we're humans and we, you know, we act and behave in, in certain ways. But what I wanted to do was just really kind of have honest conversations about what is going right and, and what is going wrong. Uh, and part of that has led me back to one of the key programs I run as an individual. It's called Brave Leadership. And what you will find is when I am interviewing a number of individuals during this series or during this next season, I think I'm going to run probably another 15 for this next season, is just to find out from individuals what brave leadership looks like for them. Uh, And for me, brave leadership is about taking some of the old rule books around the way that we engage and we work uh, with one another and tearing it up. Um, Some of that will be quite challenging, and some of that will get a lot of resistance. But I'm always curious as to ones who don't follow this specific rulebook. I, I hate the way that a phrase like disruption is often overused, but I like the fact that people can go in and they can disrupt um, specific spaces they are in by doing things slightly differently. So I've been able to secure, as again, as I said, some really interesting people to have some interviews. I'm still going to be doing ones where I'm talking about things that I'm really passionate about. But I'm going to try and lean it a lot more heavily to getting a lot of insights from other people who are working in this space and who are either running and leading their own companies, departments, or specifically doing a lot of hands-on work in terms of coaching or programs to help to redefine what brave leadership looks like. So let me take it back a bit to this whole concept of brave leadership. So uh, like so many others who are in this space, I'm not going to make no bones about it because it's easy to sell in for people. Um, I have a mnemonic and the mnemonic for brave is that it's bold, resilient, authentic, visionary and empowering. And I'm going to break that down a bit. Now in my travels as a speaker and and a workshop facilitator, there are times where it could be I'm working with a senior leadership team in a school. Or I'm working with an executive team in a, in a corporation or, or working with startups who are looking to develop their vision and their idea about where they want to take their company. And I all start off with this concept about being bold. What is it that you really want to do? What's the kind of legacy that you really want to leave? And as with any organization that runs, you know, one of the best things that you want to be able to do is be able to manage the resources effectively. If you're running a profitable company, you want to be able to make sure that the company grows year on year, that you are able to have a return on your investment for those people who have decided to um, uh, invest or, 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 or be stakeholders in your organization. And part of that will drive the direction that you go in, but as equally important is the culture that you have. So what makes it different? What makes you really bold? So, for example, let me give you an example of bold leadership that might sound a bit weird. But let's take Snap, or the the parent company of Snapchat. Now, they have decided that they do not want to print any diversity figures. This may seem to go against some of the thoughts and ideas that I have, but I think that's actually quite bold. In the light of many organizations like Google uh, and, and other tech companies that have got some real have really, you know, the the proverbial shit has hit the fan for them. There has been um, a rush to try and be, you know, this organisation that has this tick box because they're doing unconscious bias training or implicit bias training, whatever you want to call it, and they're making sure that they have their inclusive networks and all the rest of it. And that, you know, Snapchat just said, "Well, to hell with that. We know what diversity looks like for us, and we're going to do it anyway, and we're going to do it on our own terms." And the interesting thing about that is that while it's upset some people, I actually think it is quite bold. They said, you know, loads of organizations have to go down this route. They said we're not doing it. Now, on the flip side, it's important that an organization like Snapchat um, allows or is operating in a space where they they will look to recruit and retain talented individuals in all areas of their business from different backgrounds there's nothing worse than being a member of an underrepresented um, group or minority going into an organization and they reject you because they don't think that you're part of the culture fit Uh, whether that's in terms of color in race in gender orientation whatever but being able to uh, create an, 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 an organization or a culture that's inclusive is important you don't need to have a list or a tick box that says, this is our diversity program. Now don't get me wrong. I think it's absolutely important for organizations to have stuff that really focuses on diversity and inclusion. So there's a narrative that goes through the, um, the whole organization in terms of the way that you gain talent, in terms of the way that language is used, in terms of the way that you deal with your customers, in terms of the way that you just, you know, you're seen by the outside world but it shouldn't just be a tick box. And I know like here in the UK it's going to be uh, a requirement for a lot of companies to be able to explain their gender pay gaps. And I think there's also one about racial pay gaps as well. And it's so easy for individuals just to react to that rather than make it part of their inclusive culture. So boldness is about looking how the world operates and how other organizations operate, but thinking, you know, let me just do it on my terms. With the best intentions in the world, let me just do it on my terms. Uh, there is another school, I as a little school that I worked in, uh, I went and I spoke in a couple of years ago, and uh, it was a free school in London. And what I really liked about them, of course, call, they're called School Twenty One. What I really liked about this school is that they weren't focused so much on Ofsted. now uh, for those of you around the world listening and trying to find out who Ofsted is, Ofsted is a regulatory body by the uh, the government which goes into schools around the UK and it rates them on uh, on a matrix as to how good they're teaching, learning, behaviour. The, the whole culture of schools is. So they go and they look at the top end, you've got outstanding, and, and then you've got um, good, I think it is, I think satisfactory, and then requires improvement. I believe those are the four words. If needs be, I can come back and, and reference it later on for clarity. But that's kind of the measure that they will go in and um, – um, a, uh, deal with the school I think one of them the requ- needs requirement I think is now called special measures and effectively what that means is that if your school isn't up to scratch that Ofsted has the power to shut it down or bring a new leadership and a new board of governors and start all over again with the school now there are a lot of schools in the UK who are beholden to that so they're teaching the way they manage behavior the way they lead their staff and their students is shaped by this external body called Ofsted And what I really like about School 21 is that they've kind of said, you know, look, we're going to go and create this incredible curriculum. It's going to be project-based, take it or leave it. Some people won't necessarily like that approach, but we're going to do it because this is what we want for our school and for our teachers, and that's the direction we're going to go in. Ofsted, if they have to come in and see us afterwards, what they'll be able to do is they'll have to be able to come and um, almost, as it were, validate what we already know, And for me, that was really bold. They weren't focusing so much on just trying to get a tick box for this external organization. They were more concerned about what do we do internally and then let that stuff shine out. And that's what I'm talking about when I speak about bold in that that brave mnemonic. What are the things that leaders who are at the top of their organization do that are slightly different? That does give a sense of um, ownership. That does allow them to stand out from the crowd does allow those individuals who look up to those leaders, go. I'm really inspired by them because they're willing to stand out on a limb, not follow all the other rules that people have and just be themselves. The second one is around resilience. And a lot of, a lot of the corporate uh, material, and development and even speeches that you see on ted and all the other platforms on youtube all the rest of it, a lot of it seems to focus so much on this kind of command and control or or, or leadership style or, or sorry should i say a more kind of military style of leadership and even when you think about All those sports stars that you know go and who are on the professional speaking circuit who will go and they will talk about their leadership, or the adventurers who have gone up and climbed up on a mountain, it is very much command and control, it's that specific hierarchical style of leadership. And to be fair, if we look in the animal kingdom, um, hierarchy is everywhere. And even though there are a lot of organizations that seem to pride themselves on these flat management or leadership systems, the truth is. When we scratch the surface a bit, it is kind of hierarchical. It is tribal. There is the, there's, there's going to be the CEO, there's going to be the senior leadership team, or there's going to be the managing director, whichever way you look at it. There's always going to be this specific um, managing board. And even though they say they've got a flat management system, the reality is is that there is going to be a board that has to be reported to, and there are going to be some senior officers that manage it. So hierarchy is part of it. And for me, resilience is about number one, being able to own up to the fact that hierarchy is there, and also recognizing that while you are navigating that space of hierarchy, it's about being able to have a sense of backbone and have a sense of strength to weather a lot of the changes that are going to happen. And I have worked uh, alongside a number of organizations who have rolled out change management programs. And one of the things that really disappoints me in change management programs is how slow organizations are to tell staff that, you know, the reality is, is maybe a year or two down the line, we're going to have to let some staff go. Because there are going to be changes in um, technology, the, the way that things like artificial intelligence has really made some roles redundant if you go into uh, a local supermarket here in the UK you'll find that there are a hell of a lot more automated tills now and so you don't need as much headcount uh, whereas you know before you'd need seven people uh, or, to, sorry, 12 people to be on specific tills who would talk to individuals who would scan some stuff through, and then if there's a problem, they'd call somebody from the aisle. Now you can have 12 standalone scanning tools, and there may be two people who can come along and help you put their card through, and they'll help you in that space of time. You, you have totally reduced that headcount because of an advancing technology. That's a reality. Some of the low level jobs that individuals have had around manufacturing and retail. And even in white-collar um, work now, is, is it's incredible to realize that technology is going to change it. Last year, I was working in Canada for an investment bank, and I was doing some presentation coaching with uh, a lot of the senior team there who were going out and obviously attracting people who were going to put a hell of a lot of money in. But one of the things I know that they were worried for was the advance in the automation of financial services. Now, wealth management will be affected by the fact that people can go online and talk to a bot and talk to uh, a, a bit of software on an investment company that can take you through the process of how you're going to do your deal with your money. And here's the thing. Money is a very emotional subject for many people. And when people are talking to you about buying financial products, be it insurance, be it um, around uh, your pensions or anything else you want to... Uh, to put away, it can be quite emotional. And sometimes people don't like that face to face meeting, which is why so many people do find themselves in problems because they want to walk away from having to share that emotional stuff um, around money with other people. And part of the resilience or part of the story, the the resilience that leaders have to be able to, to share with their staff is that things are going to change. And, and you have to be, uh, you have to be bold enough to, uh, have that conversation that someone might lose their job, but also be able to show them that yes, there is going to be a bit of uh, a Struggle as to how we're going to manage you out of that job or how that thing's going to change But let's build up some core strengths that you can have so that if you do leave the organization You can go somewhere else and it's not just about well, is me. Oh my god. I've lost my job I can never ever survive again. And for me That's one of the important roles of being a leader being able to guide that conversation The third one is authentic and uh, I struggle with actually using this word authentic because it's one of those overused words in management speakers. One of my friends would say it's, it's one of those bo- words that you can tick off in um, uh, leadership bullshit bingo. If you have one of those courses, authentic, everybody's got to be authentic. But uh, I do believe authenticity is, uh, although it's an overused word, I think it's a misunderstood word because a lot of people aren't authentic. They're afraid to deal with conflict. There are so many instances when I, I, again, as I said, as a speaker and a facilitator that I get to travel around and I ask people, you know, are you afraid of conflict? And most people are afraid because they don't have the tools as to how to manage conflict. I am so surprised when I do go to organizations and find out that so many people are in positions of leadership or are being tapped for positions of leadership and they have got no um, training on negotiation skills they have no training on conflict management. And I'm not just talking about being a leader and having to conflict manage down, but sometimes I'm talking about individuals who understand leadership styles and have to learn how to manage up as well and, and, and dealing with conflict in an awkward way instead of being afraid of that person who's getting paid more than them and who's got a senior title. And authenticity is about being yourself because you bring yourself to work and you know the reality is we spend, most of us who work, we spend a large portion of our time, especially if you're working in a in a larger organization or in a larger office with other people, we spend so much time around other individuals. And that does bring points where we will have conflict, we will have differences of opinion. And it doesn't mean that we go from zero to DEF CON 5 in one jump, which is what a lot of people fear about when we talk about conflict. But how can we manage those little micro conflicts that we have and and start to develop what our boundaries are holding our values and being able to do things slightly differently and Authenticity or being yourself or having a sense of what that self-esteem or as my friend Dr. Tim O'Brien would say my self esteems. How do we manage that process? So that we remain our true selves wherever we are working And the fourth one is visionary And for me, part of the role of being a leader is being able to not only have hindsight to see what has happened before, insight to see what's happening in the present, but foresight to see what's coming in the future as well. And the world of work is going to change in a big way. I just spoke quite obviously just now about technology, but there are going to be things like climate change. There are going to be things like the expectation for recruitment to change so that what has been... Uh, maybe historically a homogenous staff. There's going to be a lot more pressure on the tools like social media and the, the mainstream media to put a lot of companies under uh, pressure to make sure that they can uh, engage more inclusively. For example, there was a um, professor. His, name's, um, his name has escaped me. Or come back to me in a minute. But basically, there was a professor in uh, Canada and he caused a bit of a furor when he essentially refused to use gender-neutral um, pronouns when referring to individuals in in the place of work, uh, his name is Jordan Peterson. That's what it is. He's um, regardless of his politics, there are, there are lots of individuals who really took issue with him because he refused in his in, in his university in Canada to use gender, new, gender Let me get my words out: gender-neutral pronouns. And for a lot of people, they took a real, a hell of a lot of issue with that. And he held his ground. Now, wherever you are on the political spectrum, the fact is, is that for some people, they realize, look, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to be using he, she, they, or them uh, as, as a, as a way of being able to refer to somebody. Now, for me, I, I believe it's respectful. If somebody wants me to use a gender neutral pronoun, when they're referring to them, or if, uh, if, um, a woman says, please refer to me as a woman and not a lady because of the the implication, uh, or female, you know, or female or lady. If they ask me that, I think it's very important in the same way that I don't like to be referred as colored. And, and if somebody refers to me that way, I'm more than happy to kind of have a conversation about the racial category that I would prefer to be defined. In, in this case, for me, it's black, because black is not only about a, a color, but it's also a political stance as well. Um, in in uh, in the society that I live in. And for me, it's important when you're thinking about being visionary to understand that changes are going to be made down the line. What are you going to do as a leader to be able to react to that? Some of it might be language, some of it may be the technology, some of it may be how do we react to, to climate, some of it may be, for example, here in the UK, how are we going to be able to react uh, in the next year or so around Brexit? You know, the UK, um, wherever you stay on the politically on this fence has decided that through a referendum, that we are going to live the Europe, the European Union. What it's meant, uh, regardless of where, again, as I say, you stand on the political spectrum, is that there is going to be a seismic change as to way the way things are done. We're already seeing massive repercussions of uh, industries no longer investing because they're holding out to see what will happen. We've seen where... Um, Former partners that we were trading with as part of the European Union are, are saying, yes, we will trade with you, but you are at the back of the queue because Europe as a larger trading block is a bit more beneficial than having to deal with the UK on its own. And there is going to be a massive impact for individuals who are leading organisations, whether they're in education and they're going to be able to lose out on some of the funding that came through things like Erasmus and, and all the other kinds of um, European-wide funding programmes that were available to schools and students in the UK, or whether it's in business, being able to have to think about the way that you develop and you manufacture or you provide services across the board. And part of that vision as a leader is being able to say, look, even though we're not quite sure where this is going to go or where the government's going to go, what are the kind of risks that we have to be able to cater for? or the mitigating factors that we have to be able to plan for our organization. It may be that we Uh, in order to be on the good side of the law, we may have to remove our headquarters from the UK to Dublin in Ireland or or mainland Europe so that essentially we can still have the benefit of being able to participate in Europe as a whole. You can't do that by just sitting on your hands as a leader. There has to be something that's going to be quite visionary where you do your scenario modelling, where you think about not just the economic but the the human resource and and the other kind of management issues that are going to affect you some way down the line. And visionary leadership is, is important because a, a great part of taking your organization or your people to the next level is having that sense of foresight as to what is it you're going to do in the future. How are you going to cater for it? How will you be able to be that futurist, as it were, for your company that can weather the storms or the inevitable storms that are going to come along? And the last one is about empowering and empowering for me is about ensuring as a leader that whether or not people continue to work with you or even if they leave that organization how do you empower them to do that job one of the greatest tasks of being a leader in an, or a manager in any organization is is about again as i said taking that responsibility to make people feel worthy now we can sit here all day and say you know no one should have to make you feel worthy in what you're doing, you should be able to take control and take charge of yourself. But the truth is, the reason why we do have so many leaders is because people do look up to them. You know, I never could work for somebody like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. I just couldn't work for those guys because although they're absolutely incredibly empowering and I think they're incredibly visionary and bold and, and unauthentic, all the other stuff that they've done, for me there are some things about their leadership style that wouldn't empower me. Uh, first and foremost, the way that I know that on the record that they have talked to people, the way that they will just sack people willy-nilly if you're not part and parcel of it and the really high turnover of staff, it just wouldn't work for me. That's not the kind of environment I would like to work in. I prefer a more collegial, more collaborative um, experience, and I'm not going to be just to somebody just because they're this um, person that has been fettered by the media and everybody thinks that they're you know the equivalent of, of God. That just doesn't work for me. Uh, But there are people who love that and they are empowered by that. They feel incredibly uh, grateful to work for organizations like Apple and Amazon and Google and Facebook and Tesla and all those other large um, organizations that get top billing uh, for where students and graduates and other professionals want to go and work. So whichever way you look at it, people will be empowered slightly differently. And part of your leadership process is making sure that people are empowered, not through fear, even though some, because I, I think that's disempowering through fear, but not through fear, but being able to go and do the job, knowing that the, whichever way they have the rewards, for some it will be money, for some it might be thank you, being able to empower those individuals. So that's the concept of Brave for me. How, as organizations, are we able to balance those things? And, and one of the most challenging things about um, leadership is, is measurement. How do we measure that kind of brave, um, that brave leadership? For example, in any organization, we can measure uh, so, so many different things on, on, on the metrics using marketing, around our recruitment and retention. We can measure things around our profitability and our finance. But very often, and I will say more often than not, we don't measure the impact of our leadership or the performance. Or if we do, it just tends to center around one specific person rather than a culture as a whole. And i'm really intrigued as to how especially going forward how i can work and learn from other organizations as to how that stuff can be measured how can we link the the style uh, and the the approach of leadership to things like employee engagement how can we link that to uh organizations where there is a real sense of not just words but an actual sense of what the um inclusive culture looks like and let's be honest job satisfaction because more than anything else there are lots of individuals who will go into a job and the one thing that they do want when they are working there is a sense of job satisfaction there are uh, lots of industries and there are lots of companies where individuals have to work at that workplace out of a need of economic necessity they will go and they will work zero hours contracts or they will go and they will work with a uh, an organization because they know they need the money especially if you come from an economically deprived area or if you have a skill set that you know that you can't trade it off for a lot of money so being able to be in an organization you are grateful uh, okay it's not even thankful but you are truly grateful that you've got that job and part of that Leadership narrative or part of the leadership development narrative around bravery leadership is how can we actually measure it to align? Both the leadership that people have in place uh, That is being used to run the organization or run a department has a, an effect on that engagement or on that satisfaction or on that diversity Because at the moment if I'm really honest the majority of the conversations that we have around this is bullshit. It's platitudes we talk about oh, wanting to make sure our team feel good and we go away and we get ping pong tables and we take them away on away days which they have no investment in. Usually you've never really asked the team about it or we feel that it's just about giving them a little incentive. But the, the reality is, is there's no real strong measurement tools in place to say this leadership is working. These leadership models are are are, are, are really what is working here, and and using this evidence and using this research, we can use this evidence to inform the way our leadership is done, not only within our organisation but other organisations as well. And so, for me to give a sense of um, context for this next series of of, of podcasts uh, uh, on on the Dave McQueen show. I really, really want to dive deep into this concept of brave leadership. What can we do? What's the things that we can challenge? What are the paradigms that we can create that will take leadership to another level in the 21st century? Because let's be honest, you know, as much as people may dislike him, there are a lot of people who love Donald Trump and they love his style of leadership. They like the fact that he is very outspoken. He may be racially divisive. He may be a misogynist. He may be a um, uh, xenophobic he may seem clueless, but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of people, if they had an opportunity to vote again for somebody like him, they would do. And and that is a form of leadership that we can't dismiss. Even if you don't like it, lots of people buy into it. So what are the tools that we can use around um, leadership to say, you know, what is working? What's this brave leadership model that works? Some of it might be toxic. Some of it might be the stuff that is really empowering and and, and allows people to go, okay, this is the kind of model that I really want to copy uh, and replicate. And so my um, my challenge as not just as a podcaster but as a speaker uh, and as a facilitator and as a coach is to really start pulling out more of these stories and and challenging more of the methodologies and approaches to see how leadership could really work um, in the future. For many organizations in two areas that i'm really passionate with so in the corporate area but also in education as well and i really want to be able to see how by interviewing so many people who are working on on the ground in these areas to see how they play um how they play with this and um uh, so that's it basically and uh, i'm looking forward to going through with these uh And sharing these interviews that I've had with you as my audience, please, as always, um, uh, give me your feedback. I'm really, really happy to know what you think about these conversations and the direction they're actually going. So I just want to say thank you for listening to this week's episode. And whatever platform you're on, I'm on iTunes, uh, I'm on SoundCloud. I'm currently looking as to whether or not I can transfer this stuff to Spotify and Stitcher and all the other platforms as well. But please go ahead and and share this uh, podcast uh, across social media as well. Comment and rate. It's really good because when other people see it who may not necessarily know about me, it brings more individuals to um, the platform as well. I appreciate both your time to listen and your feedback as always. And look forward to having you tune into the next episode of the David McQueen show. Until then, take care and bye.